the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. We made it on the air, at least on WBSM. Having some issues with Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, but we'll, we'll figure our way through that. Oh, yeah, I forgot I have to turn off that computer part, too. Ah, this show's a wreck already, and we're just getting started a little bit late. Thank you, Red Sox, for that. That's what happens when we broadcast here in the summertime. Uh, but we normally broadcast on WBSM and on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com, but some Internet issues in the studio preventing that. What a surprise, really. I'm getting kind of fed up with all this stuff. <sighs> Every week it's something else. What can you do? Adapt and overcome. Except now the problem is we have uh, two shows now a week on Spooky TV where we have these issues. Both this show and Spooky Crossroads with myself and Chris Balzano. That show has been problem-laden from the start. So, hey, we'll just go through it. I I feel bad, Derek. That's all right. You came all the way down here and, you know, short on time. It's all good, man. Short on media. It's all good. Well, Derek Gunn is our guest in the studio, and uh, you probably know his website, Amazing Massachusetts. We have it linked up on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com, which you know we can't access here, but you can at home. The world can. <laughs> and uh, you do a great job compiling a lot of the uh, unusual aspects of the Commonwealth, that's for sure. How did you, you get involved chronicling all that? Uh, first of all, I'd like to say thanks for having me on, guys. I really oh, appreciate no it. I'm looking forward to coming on. and it, it, We had some logistics ourselves about getting me here, and uh, it, all, it all happened, so I'm happy to be here. Um, I got involved around 1987. I was reading a book called The Highland Clans, and it had a little footnote that talked about the Westford Knight. And uh, I was actually wrapping up a Christmas present for my dad. And uh, just before I wrapped it up, I, I opened up to the, cl- the section on Clan Gun, our family, and, and down the bottom of the page it said that there was a, a carving in Westford, Mass. that was circa 1398 or 1399. And I remember thinking, how could there be a carving with our family coat of arms on it in 1390s, it doesn't even make any sense. And it took me a couple years to get up there. Finally, in around 92, I, I really kind of delved into it heavily. met with uh, Virginia Kimball and uh, Norman Bigart and Bill Collins, some of the members of the Westford Knight Committee. And they were heavily involved in trying to prove the veracity of this carving, this mid- late medieval uh, uh, punch-marked effigy. And, um, and so, as a kid, I was always into, like, kind of fringe stuff in a sense. I mean, you know, we had, like, Ripley's Believe It or Not, little paperbacks around the house, I think probably from my dad. And uh, there was like In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy, obviously, and, and things like that. Um, and then in the 80s, they had Ripley's as a TV show. And, and so fringe things have always been kind of stuff that I've always gravitated towards. Mm-hmm. So I started interested in the Westford Knight, you know, that led to like Dighton Rock and other uh, anomalous inscriptions. And then when I was looking for the archaeological stuff in books, you know, you come across other things, you know. Hoover the talking seal or you know sea serpent reports out of Gloucester in the 18 you know 17 18 19 period and all these other kind of things so I started like 
getting you know writing those down on the side too and then so it kind of started from an archaeological slant and then moved into just general f- paranormal or fringe topics you know and i i suppose too that as technology progressed and as we were able to get these uh stories brought right into our home via the internet you probably were able to uncover more and more information than might have been out there in, in a lot of those books absolutely i mean just a difference from I think the f- first year I was really heavily into, so say like 92, 90, probably 93. I mean, that summer I was re- doing a lot of research on Massachusetts UFO cases and really going out to Bridgewater to see, you know, the Bridgewater Triangle, you know, see the Hockamock Swamp and stuff, and going to different archaeological sites, chambers, inscriptions, standing stones, and things like that. But what a difference from then, say, to now. Like, I mean, well, Matt and I were talking about Witch Rock over in Rochester, and I mean, I, I Googled that the other day and got um, – you know, two or three different really good references in, in older books that that would have, you know, in 92, I probably would have been at a library somewhere in Rochester, you yeah. know, it, and now it's just like the library at your fingertips. I mean, the internet has been great. And, and you're able to communicate with other people who have been investigating that site and, and other people who have been chronicling its history. And uh, the good part is, is, is a lot of the older generation is finally starting to figure out the internet. Uh, you have the historical societies are now starting to put a lot of their information online. So you don't have to actually physically get in the car and drive to those places because I'm sure you know what a nightmare it is because they're doing everything part-time and they're mostly senior citizens. And it's, you know, you got to kind of work on their schedule to get in there and check out their archives. And now you can find out more of the story on town websites and historical society Absolutely. websites. I mean, the, the internet is it's just really a godsend for this kind of research, for probably any kind of research, but I, I know it's definitely helped me. But then, of course, there's <coughs> the downside of it, though, that there's a lot of people that are writing about these sites uh, and these different phenomena in the state that have never actually gone out and looked at it. They're just stealing your stuff that's, off the internet. That's true, too. And and also, you know, like anything, um, there there are mistakes, like books. But mm-hmm. the internet has, I mean, some doozies. Sometimes you see things about the Westford Night, and they've, you know, they've got things wrong. You know, it's it's. Um, what do you do? Do you write? I guess maybe you could write off to the side and try to clarify something. But uh, no, it's it it is it's awesome. I mean, I I use the internet a lot to try to find things, and um, and uh, and one thing I love how like you know one thing will lead to another. You know, you, you, sure. you'll be there and you'll be on one subject, and all of a sudden. You know, you're studying like standing stones. The next thing you're on like the Greek god Hermes, and you're like, "How did I? How did I get here?" You know, it's like it's it's, <laughs> it's kind of like ADD research. Yeah, you know, which is <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah. So, uh, but, but I mean, now that you've been able to kind of compile all this together, how does that make you feel about the state to know that there's this much strange and unusual and amazing stuff? Oh, I think it's awesome. I mean, um, sometimes that's one of the things I I think got me going to writing the book is that. You know, I think when you grow up somewhere, somewhere else is always more exotic mm-hmm. or it's more interesting. Like, for example, if I was down the Cape and I saw a guy painting, you know, uh, at a, at a, he's at a bridge and he's painting, and he said he's from Sandwich, it would be 50% interest. If he said he came from Flagstaff, Arizona, I don't know why, but that would be more interesting to the average person, I think. Like, why is he here from... Sure. So the sort of the, the lure of the exotic or whatever, but I, I know people want to, like, save up their money and go to Bali or do different things, and there are so, so many amazing spots around the world but i started realizing that the state i live in is as interesting and unusual and exotic as is anywhere it's just that you don't kind of realize it if you're growing up here because mm-hmm. you're like oh you know the plymouth rocks down the street this is you know boston's right there and you're almost like jaded a little bit but when you really delve into the bay state i mean there's all those towns out in the berkshires and stuff that i i've only been to a couple times like, like new braintree and mm-hmm. you know new salem and Florida Mass. And I've hardly been to Old Braintree and Old Salem right. myself. <laughs> but that's what I mean. There's just there's so much to, and we don't have a very large state, but there's, there's just so many cool things about Massachusetts, and that's kind of what got me going. I think also the fact that I decided um, early on that 
I would focus on the Bay State so I didn't end up in like Vermont, you mm-hmm. know, because there's so many standing stones in like in, in Vermont and New Hampshire and like Connecticut. Yeah, to kind of put the cap on. I, it, I tried to limit myself and then it, it just ended up being like kind of a cool thing. It's like, well, what's just in this state? And it's very arbitrary because especially with my ancient stuff that I'm into, there was no Massachusetts then. This is very, you know. But as an arbitrary cutoff point, like I said, so I didn't end up in Western Vermont every other weekend. I started with this idea of amazing Massachusetts as a, as a concept, you know. And, and it seems like this the state has such an amalgamation of its history. You know, it's all the different parts of what made Massachusetts what it is. I mean, from the North visitors to the English settlers to all this, there's so many different outside influences that have kind of shaped what was already going on here, which was already kind of weird and unusual to begin with. Absolutely. I mean, you... If you were to study the town history in some place like, uh, let's say, um, like North Adams, Mass., or Heath, Mass., it's very different, say, than what went on in Sandwich, Mass. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a whole different time period. Those towns tend to be later. And um, and even the, there were different kinds of Indians there. I mean, there were different you know, sub-tribes or whatever going on. So uh, the history, even the prehistory is different. A I mean, and, and you can't help but, as you're doing your research, I'm sure this happens, but to just the common person out there, delving into this a little bit, you can't help but uncover new layers of history that you were never taught in school. Uh, For example, I mean, I never knew about Gosnold until I started researching Ghosts of the South Coast. And then, okay, now wait a minute. Now you're telling me that this Gosnold guy came here before the Pilgrims did, and he kind of pissed off a bunch of the Indians, and they might have placed a curse on him? There might have been some ghosts involved with those stories? You know, now we're starting to see earlier stuff that, you know, goes beyond what we learned in the classroom. Oh, and we talk all the time, King Philip's War. I mean, I don't remember ever hearing that until I started doing this program. Yeah, I, well, in my home, uh, you're exactly right. I mean, in my hometown of Marshfield, Mass., um, we have a very early uh, radio broadcast that was actually in 1906. It was in the, around Christmas Eve of 1906 that this Canadian inventor did a broadcast of radio the way we're doing it right now. It was not Morse code. It was actual, you know, audio Spoken word. <laughs> it was spoken. It was he played the violin. He was actually the first DJ and the first musician. He played a record, so he was the first DJ. And he, um, this Reginald Fessenden uh, character, came down. He was a Canadian, but he he did it from Brant Rock. I grew up in Marshfield. I don't think they ever mentioned that in, in junior high school, high school. I mm-hmm. happened to come across it at the Ventress Library. Sorry, Moniz. I don't know which number your microphone is. This better. Yeah. yeah there you go. They used to be microphone four, now it's two. But I, I think that's an example, like that you, like you said, I grew up in that town. Um, I was not a huge history buff as a kid. I mean, I, I was into other things, more into art, music and art and different things. But, um, but you could grow up, you, you could live your whole life, and then you're about like 25, and you happen to come across a book in the library, and you go, wait a second, the first radio broadcast in world history across the earth, first transatlantic radio broadcast was from Brant Rock to Scotland. Who knew? You know, you I know, know where that place is, Yeah. <laughs> I, I go scuba diving right up by it. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we've we've had uh, incidences of that on our own when we've done, you know, some of our para, uh, our Legend Trips events and some of our other events that we've done. And we bring people into, I mean, they might be from 10 minutes away, and they never realize the history of the location that they're in. I mean, Fearing Tavern in Wareham was famous for that. Like, everybody yeah. we brought in, like, I never even knew this place was here. Really? You've lived here for 20 years. You drive by it every day. Yeah, but on your way to work every day. Yeah, but that's, that's how it is. You're, well, you're kind of blind to it. That's, I think, why you guys do what you do, why I'm working on my project with the, with the website and in the future book, uh, just to, to raise the consciousness of, mm-hmm. of what we have right here near us. You know, um, what's, what's probably the most bizarre story that you could share about Massachusetts for somebody? What, what, what would be the okay. thing that would surprise I, people I think, the most? I think the story um, 
of the, I think it's the Martin family in Methuen in 1963. They had a case, and I know this sounds like I made it up, but allegedly they had a house that rained inside. It was kind of a poltergeist-type phenomenon or something. And that's not the first time stuff like that's, that's been reported. That's, that's the first thing I right. thought of was yeah. poltergeist activity. Yeah. That, uh, Rich, is, Rich Hansen's here with us today. And he was telling me about a case in the Philippines um, right across from where um, his, his uh, friend's family lives. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they, had a, they had water spurting out of the wall. They, I mean, this was 1963. This isn't like ancient history. This is fairly recent history. And um, allegedly, like, they turned the water off at the main or whatever. Like, firemen, policemen saw this. It started increasing in intensity to the point where they moved to the mother-in-law's house in Lawrence, I think it was. And it followed them there. Oh, wow. So they, that's when they decided it really wasn't about the house. It was probably, like, more to do with some of the people. And uh, it sort of mysteriously ramped up, and it plateaued off, and then it mysteriously went away. And it was... Uh, there is a case, I think, it's in a different state. It might be Connecticut, but the family name was Waterman, which I thought was a funny... St- there's, there's one that, uh, that John Zaffis uh, investigated where there was similar phenomena. And uh, I, I remember him talking with us about it and, and just hearing about it. And I was like, wow, that must have been the most bizarre thing you've ever seen. And he's like, well, it happens a lot with poltergeist cases. So wow. I mean, maybe that's exactly what it was. You mentioned that. Maybe that's exactly they what it was. They felt it was because the phenomena moved to mm-hmm. the to a different town. Like where, where they went, it, it went. And um, so they decided it wasn't really about the house anymore. It was more about the people. But um, I'm trying to think of other um, really like kind of well, there's always little interesting nooks and crannies of the state, though, that you find out about that you never really knew existed. Uh, I mean, there's in, in the South Coast region, we have so many cool and interesting sites. I mean, there's caves in Middleborough that people wouldn't even know about. You know, there's, ca- there's caves all over the state that people wouldn't even know about. We walk right over them sometimes and don't even realize it. it it's such a unique, you know, landscape and unique top- topography here that uh, we actually overlook a lot of what was here before. I think... Um a lot of the um, <coughs> inscribed stones are really interesting, like Dighton Rock, like the Westford Knight, mm-hmm. um, that may indicate that there were ancient visitors to these sh- shores and you know up the rivers and things in ancient times. Um, I think that's kind of, if you really ponder that, it's kind of a fascinating and kind of a little bit of a mind-boggling thing. The other thing I think besides the rainfall that was interesting was the case of, do you guys are familiar with uh, Hoover, the talking seal? No. Here, this is, there was a seal... And again, this sounds like I made it up, but there was a seal at the New England Aquarium that came. He was, I guess, found as a, a baby seal in, in Maine, and he was kept in somebody's bathtub. And eventually he made it to the New England Aquarium, but he used to – he emulated human speech. Oh, wow. And he would say things like, uh, get out of here and stuff like that. But he had, the, I guess, the accent of the guy who raised him or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, Hoover died, I think, around 1981. Uh, there are recordings of his – speech-like things and I remember in the Globe it said something he had an obituary in the Globe when he died but it said that um, the, one of the representatives of somebody from the New England Aquarium said uh, well all I can tell you is that like harbor seals aren't supposed to make those sounds but why he does it I don't know past that but that generally they don't do what he's doing so there was Hoover the talking seal um, uh, you had a house that rained inside um, I've got some cases that a little bit it's, it's hard to verify like somebody said they saw like an albino alligator Mm-hmm. Crossing the road. I, I don't know if I, you know. Um, yeah, why, why did the albino alligator yeah, cross the road? To, uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 to, chase chi- to chase the chicken. No. Uh, th- there's, um, of course, there's that, that Mothman case around 1971. I was say, now we know why the chicken was walking across Running, yeah. the road. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Running from that albino alligator. To get away alligator. from the alligator. Um, there was, um, there was uh, the, the Mothman case there that, like, uh, that 
was seen in I think it was Easton or Mansfield around seventy one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. The one that populates out behind the dog track area. But getting back to the uh, alligators, we've had several alligators removed out of a couple of uh, ponds up in Brockton and Bridgewater area. And the Charles Charles River, correct. Well, you know how to keep the alligators away. No. Stick a banana in your ear. Okay. Isn't that what Ernie did? (laughs) Stuck a banana in his ear to keep the alligators away from Sesame Street. Okay. Yeah, I got I to backtrack. I forgot that one. My, but uh, <coughs> I mean, you mentioned Dighton Rock before, and that's something we've talked about on this program before. It's this mysterious rock that is kind of out in the middle of nowhere and uh, has these strange uh, inscriptions on them that nobody can quite translate and figure yeah. out what it is. What, what is your theory? What, what's your working theory I, on Dighton Rock? I think that um, this is this, this may not be popular, but my, my actual theory, I don't think that it's, that it's from 1511. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the Portuguese theory is correct. Um, and I understand that that might bother people because I think if someone said to me, Derek, that Westford Night thing is like bogus, and some people do think it's bogus, think it's just glacial striations. But I think I'd a little bit like, wait, you know, you feel it's like family. Yeah, you're very defensive about yeah, it. Yeah, you, you know. Um, the reason I feel the 1511 that the that the Cortereal, um theory is not quite right is the 1511 in particular is is really part of a. Uh, like a zoomorphic figure. It's really, it would almost be like, the, uh, to give you an example, if I showed you the word death and I put my hand over the D and I put my hand over the H and I said, Tim, Matt, what's this say? And you'd say, it says E. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what they're doing to get 1511. The 1511 is there only if you can kind of extrapolate it out of more, f- there's, there are more lines there. Mm-hmm. And um, almost every drawing that I've seen um, from way back um, to 1680, shows this area as as not a 1511. It shows that it's sort of like a little blob head and a little figure eight blob body mm-hmm. with a little dot in the belly, and um, and uh, you know it's so. I think what it is is it's almost like the graffiti you see by the highway where it says you know 1962, and then over here it says you know Led Zepp, and over here it says Johnny Loves Susie. Or I it think says Moniz was here. Moniz was here. <laughs> I think it's a real. There's there's some overlap there. I, I definitely think that some of those faces on there, there's some very um, kind of primitive-looking circular um, faces, and I don't mean primitive in a bad way, but I think that might be some Native American stuff because that tends to be what – that's kind of how they drew. You know, it, yeah, and, and you were worried about you know the, the Portuguese community being upset about you saying that you don't think that it relates to them, but I actually hear a lot of Portuguese people say, no, we have nothing to do with Dighton Rock. That's, mm-hmm. that's not our language. You know, that's, not, that's not us. So I, I think that it is one of those things that's going to be hotly debated forever, and I don't think anybody's ever going to crack it. Yeah, I, I mean, the, th- the thing is is that w- uh, what I try to do, I've, I've, I've actually taken like six or seven drawings through the ages and try to see what are the common features. And one of the Portuguese crosses that's up in the middle of the panel <clears throat> it always, to me, looked almost more like a fish. It has kind of like a triangular tail, and it grows into sort of a diamond shape, mm-hmm. a rhombus. And that has been sort of, with the addition of some paint and stuff, sh- sort of continued the lines down and up and stuff and made into a Portuguese cross. And um, and I, I think that the, all the other drawings and all the photographs that were taken at night with, at a raking angle and stuff never really showed it the way the Portuguese enthusiasts see it. And so, you know, like I said, I don't want to rain on anybody's parade, but I just, I'm trying, I'm looking for accuracy in my book and in my research. Sure. And, um, and, I, and I think it's entirely possible that person that, that there were, there were people here in 1502 or 1511 um, because, you know, the Portuguese are great sailors. I mean, they were in, like, Sri Lanka. They, I mean, they're unbelievable. 
I mean, they were in like Brazil in like 1500. I mean, you know, th- there's no taking anything away from Portuguese sailors. They're unbelievable. I'm sure they were here, but I just don't think Dighton Rock necessarily relates to that sure. that phase. Now I, think it's, I think it's more ancient than that is what I think. And, and one thing about I just want to say is um, when people show other Portuguese inscriptions from around the world to compare to Dighton Rock, Dighton Rock looks sloppy, crude. I mean, the ones, if you see something in, like, in Sri Lanka that's a known Portuguese inscription from some sailors, it's very neat. You can, it reads right across. It looks nothing like Dighton Rock. The flavors are entirely different. Well, speaking of, of famous rocks from the area, do you ever do what I like to do? Do you ever, like, head down to Plymouth and, <laughs> in November and stand around Plymouth Rock and when everybody oohs and ahs, be like, you know, it's not the real rock. Yeah. Some, some old guy said that was the rock they stepped off of. <laughs> I, lo- I love to do that. Like, you know, they just picked a rock, right? Like, they wanted to build this park and they're like, yeah, let's bring in a rock that looks like it might have been the rock. Wasn't the story they got, like, some old old guy that was said that he thought that he thought that was the rockest. I, I, I think, don't even know. I think I, there's I a just, little story there that he Yeah, there is. He he said, "Well, that's the one I remember, but he was like half blind." His grandfather's the was the one that pointed it Something out. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's yeah. very Even though at that point they were 300 years removed from <laughs> the Pilgrims landing. Yeah. You know, they remember. I know. Can you imagine being from where they have like massive like you're from Colorado and you come and you see that rock. You know people have, you have to know people have gone, "That's it." Oh <laughs> yeah. I I know somebody that came up all the way from Florida. And well, what do we want to do? Well, the first thing I want to do is I want to go see Plymouth Rock. Are you sure? Yeah, I definitely <laughs> do. And then we took her up there and she looked at it and she goes, oh, it's a rock. Yeah. Well, what would you think it was going to be? Did you think it was going to be glowing with <laughs> yeah, some mystical yeah, right. blue power? You know, <laughs> Evidently you know? she did. Yeah. So, but, and it, but what I find interesting, especially about that area, and, and it, again, it's probably our own ignorance to our own history, but... Uh, I lived in Plymouth for a number of years growing up, and so I knew about the Forefathers Monument, mm-hmm. and so I would often go there, but I didn't know about the Standish Monument, and I would kind of look out and see this thing, and I'd be like, what is that? Where is it, and how do I get to it? Yes. And I probably spent 20 years trying to figure out how to get to it until finally I was like, oh, it's that road right there that's the Standish Monument. <laughs> and when I went up there, this was only a, a few months ago, and I, I went out there and checked it out, and I was like, this is a whole – I discovered this whole part of Duxbury that I never knew about. So it's a whole other community. Again, another story, just driving around. And Moniz, you'll be able to help me out on the name of this because I don't know the name of it. But I was driving over the Bourne Bridge, and I took a right, and I started driving all around. And up on the other side of, like, Mass Maritime, there's an island that people live on. And there's a little small neck that you go out to get into it, a little bridge that you cross. But it's this island, and it's like a private area. And I'd never even known that was out there. You, is that? I know where you're talking about. Yeah, I just can't remember the name of it. That's not Pocasset, is it? No. no. It's it's out. It it's before Pocasset. Oh, yeah. It'd be like between Pocasset and and the canal. There's like this little private area, and like we went out there, and we're driving in a, and I think we were in like my beat up Subaru, and uh, everybody's turning on their lights, like who the hell is out here? And then of course all the Elizabeth Islands, you yeah. know, yeah. like people Cutty, Cutty people don't stuff. realize that, and and Penikey's Island, the the interesting story that that has, you know, and and going from being a leper colony to now being. Uh, a school for uh, troubled youth kids, yeah. and being severely haunted on top of that. So, which sooner or later... I thought I heard, and I got... Cuddy Hunk is also extremely haunted. I have to dig this up about Penikes. I think I think I heard that there was some foundations that they thought might be Norse out there. Oh, really? Did you hear about that? Yeah. No, I didn't hear about that. Yeah, it was in one book, and I, I can't remember where I read it, but I was in a bookstore, 
and it, it, it escapes me right now the title but it it said that and it was like one of those things where they always talk about the Norse on the first page or two you know mm-hmm. like history books they talk about Indians and Vikings right in the front and yep. you know it's like two pages they say oh the Norsemen might have been here and may have been yeah. but well, they mentioned foundations I believe I don't think it was Cuddy Hunk I think it was Penikis well one of the um, other things that they found theoretically that was supposed to be Norse is when they were s- building the Christmas tree shop at uh, Sagamore you know where that is, uh, at right over you come over the bridge. What's interesting is I used to live at the bottom of the hill, right where that was at, at Adam Street. And uh, they supposedly found some Norse coins and other artifacts when they well, were putting the. Uh, wow. But there's a reason for that. Okay. They're saving up there. Didn't the Norse just love a bargain? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Don't we all? Yeah. They wanted to go, they wanted to get the little fisherman. Wooden statue that you you know you put on your desk. Are you are you familiar, Tim? With you said you lived in Plymouth. Are you familiar with um, Sacrifice Rock on Old Sandwich Road? You know, I was not until maybe last week or the week before. I did uh, some research into possibly trying to come up with a Plymouth area for a Legend Trips event, and I went to the Historical Society's website and I looked at some of the sites that they operate, and that's when I first saw it, and I was like. Oh my God! This is like a hop, skip, and a jump from where I live now. Yeah. Because I live out in East Wareham, but where I live, you know, if I'm willing to go down some bog roads and my beat up Subaru, I can get over. Yeah. <laughs> I can get over there pretty quick because it's right near the Pine Hills, it right? Is, it is right there. Yeah. And 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 what's the story about that? Well, as far as I know, on Sacrifice Rock, um, I believe that it's not a Sacrifice Rock like they were lopping off heads and, mm-hmm. and hands there. I think it meant more like along. I think the Native American religious life was a little bit almost like Shintoism, a lot of ancestor worship probably. And you probably had to like appease spirits and do this and that and the other thing. There was a lot of ritual involved. And so along that old sandwich road, which I'm sure was an Indian trail, I'm sure that road was probably an Indian trail. It became a pilgrim trail. It became the road that you're driving on today. Um, There are several sacrifice rocks, but there's that real famous one that has the plaque on it. And um, the book Manitou says there, there are a couple, two or three. And, um, but what it is is the Indians would have, like, donation boulders. So you would have, like, a, a rock that people would lean sticks against or put smaller rocks on top of the bigger boulder. And um, you make a cairn. You make a stone pile. And, um, well, stone piles are kind of a worldwide phenomenon, really, mm-hmm. with boundaries. And, um, you know, it's just it's something people do. I mean, look at the Pine Hills. If you look at the, the, the um, promotional things the Pine Hills do, or even if you drive around the Pine Hills development, they have, they have stone stacks. That's kind of like almost like the little logo almost, you know. And um, <clears throat> But the Sacrifice Rock, I, like I said, I think people in Plymouth, you just hear that w- phrase, Sacrifice Rock. Mm-hmm. I think that if you talk to kids down there on the water, they probably say, oh, yeah, man, they were like chopping arms off down there and legs. But I really think it meant like the sacrifice in the sense like if you were walking – one way you might have to detour a little over, get by that rock, and do something for oh, right. ancestor worship. It, because, uh, it, like I said, living in Plymouth, I didn't hear about a lot of this history, and so that was new to me. And and some of these, uh, you know, old pilgrim houses that are still standing, were stuff that we weren't taught about. Have you have you heard of Cleft Rock? No, is nobody that? knows this one. If you go up the pine, if you go up uh, Route Three A, mm-hmm. and where it, fl- I just I can't think what it is, but when you flatten off at the top, okay, before you get down. To like Gellers and all that area. Um, is it Serious Cycles might be at the top? I, I, I think it's Serious Cycles. There's a little park off to the opposite side of the road. If Serious Cycles is on your right and the ocean is to your left, you're going south on 3A, uh, there's a park in there, and there is this thing called Cleft Rock, and it's this um, 
it's a, it's a jumble of boulders and it has kind of a, like a it's like a little cave uh and it looks like it might be natural but there's an there's some aspects of it that look like almost like it might have been uh some parts of it may have been moved around a little bit to make kind of a, a better covering and i guess this there was a plaque on it years ago but um this plaque has been you know kids took it off or something oh. but uh they say the indians used to hide out there when it was like hailstorms or something like that but i imagine if the land was burned over like the indians used to do very advanced uh, land management practices and if you burned that hilltop uh, you could see the water right there i mean you'd be you know the ocean's right basically you can't see it now because of all the pine trees but um so that it's a great little i mean it's, it's, there's picnic tables it's a little park nobody hardly goes to it uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of places out there, like yeah. in the Manomet area, too. There's a lot of places that people don't know about. Uh, one stone site that I think Moniz might know about from Cremeset and Wareham is Genie's Rock. Yep. But uh, <laughs> we'll tell you that story off the air. That's that's not nearly as uh, interesting history-wise, except uh, for the... You know, per- personal in, personal history-wise. For the, for the, yeah, you might have actually been there when that happened. I wouldn't be surprised. He's, uh, he's blushing. Story for a different day. <laughs> Never seen Moniz blush before, but... Yeah, we can uh, we can talk about <laughs> about that off the air. Uh, well, one of the uh, other interesting aspects about this area is we've been known for a lot of strange creature sightings, and uh, y- you cover on on the website too a lot of the uh, the sea serpents that have been spotted in this area and some of these lake and river monsters. We seem to have our own fair share of these. Yeah, that's what I noticed. Um, again, when, you know, we're talking about growing up and not knowing what's around you. You hear things like when you're a kid and you watch In Search of, you hear about the Loch Ness Monster mm-hmm. and you hear about things in Lake Champlain. And then you find out that there was, I mean, I found out years and years later when I was an adult that there was this whole wave of sightings around 1817, 1819, that time period, up on the North Shore, where over a thousand people through this time period supposedly saw this sea serpent. And uh, there are several good books about it. And... Um, I got a question. Wasn't one of the documenters uh, Washington's secretary? Uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, one of the people that was documenting the, uh, it was in Rockport, Massachusetts, the Rockport, Gloucester area. Uh, I have relatives up there, and they were telling me about the the story about it being seen there. And one of the people that documented it was one of uh, George Washington's secretaries. He was uh, like a lieutenant or something. And uh, it was seen for a couple of weeks, yeah. hanging out on on the rocks. Yeah, the uh, one of the one of my favorite. Sto- I did. I never heard that story, but that it makes sense because I I heard that over a thousand people did spot it. So uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of funny was there were a group of people on a, on a boat, and um, I don't know if if you know maybe they were like some of the higher positioned people in the town at that point. I don't know if. The, they're judges or lawyers or <clears throat> you know people with good jobs basically and they were laughing at the other people like these stupid people you know think they're seeing a you know a sea serpent out here and as they were talking about it someone goes like you know dashi blood <laughs> they basically spotted it while they were talking about it and laughing at the foolish people in town who thought that there was a sea serpent out there which has um kind of a good little like trickster type thing going to it you know like people you know talking about something that they don't believe and then Sure, sure like that's it chose that moment that to appear right at the right, right on cue. Devil and he shall appear. Yes. Well, so it's like the trickster element. You, you, know? you kind of you made that offhand comment there though about the Archie blows, but I'm wondering. I had heard stories when I was younger that uh, the 
pilgrims and those who came over in that wave were unfamiliar with the sight of whales, and that what they were actually seeing was uh, was right whales and sperm whales out off the coast of uh, of Massachusetts, and they were unfamiliar with what it was. I don't buy that because those whales are seen from where they came from. Sure, that's what I would assume too. No, they, if they're if they're in these waters here, why wouldn't they be on the waters on the other side of the Atlantic too? Yeah, well, that's that's their range from from across you know, the edge of the Arctic line. They, so they wouldn't normally be seen. And actually, Europe had a very large whaling industry. Yeah, but you know what we call that here? We call that the disinformation machine. <laughs> okay. That's well, the the other thing too is I I think the flavor of the reports was. That this thing was like an undulating, like multi-humped mm-hmm. type, like like when you think of a stereotypical sea serpent type, when you conjure up in your mind what someone snake says a sea serpent. or eel-like. eel-like but that's, snake-like. That was, but that was kind of what they were trying to use oh, as the excuse because yeah. you're seeing the whales cresting out and you're seeing the whole school of them. You know, there's five or six okay. of them at one time all going up and down. So you're seeing that undulating type. Well, fashion. this is completely radical radio, maybe for radio, but there is, um, <laughs> there is, you know, the whale. The male whale's penis is like the largest penis, I guess, of any mammal or whatever. Second largest. Is it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh well, wait a second. I'm sitting there believing. Okay. All right, Tim. <laughs> Anywho. So, you know, with, sometimes the whales actually go to the surface, and I don't know why they do this, but they they turn it kind of upside down, and they let things fly around. It's a guy it, thing. It's a guy thing. Yeah, it's a big, yeah. you know, you, you got it. Check so, it out. So some people say that some uh, anomalous reports at sea – of you know, things kind of snake-like on the surface of the water, flipping around and stuff like that, have actually been um, yeah. misidentified. And I, I didn't make that theory up. I mean, someone actually has po- posited that there it was Moby Dick. Yes, <laughs> somebody had to do it. This is this is normally where we would take a commercial <laughs> if we had commercials to play. Yeah. But uh, actually, we might. Yeah, come. And, uh, you're gonna go on the mic. They're not gonna hear you. Yeah, if you have something, we're gonna, we're gonna have our friend Rich line. join us now. Rich has come all the way from Dedham. Right. Come on over, Rich. Yeah, come on. Uh, Actually, Rich. while you're while you're getting set up, I do have uh, some commercials that I should burn. All right. So let me just do that, and we'll be right back in a moment here on Spooky South Coast. Yeah. We are back with Spooky South Coast here with our guest tonight, Derek Gunn, and we brought in Rich Hansen, is it? Yes. And uh, and he's going to be sharing some information with us. Uh, you were saying as we, before we went to commercial. Oh, yes. Um, interesting theory on the uh, sea serpent sightings. It was on uh, a webpage called uh, Cryptomundo or Anomalous.com. Uh, mm-hmm. Lauren Coleman contributes a lot of, uh, of the uh, web links and articles. And uh, they talked about this giant anaconda, uh, supposedly a hunt. They think it's an anaconda in the Amazon. Peruvian Amazon, about 100 feet long, and uh, very wide, and people have walked on it, thought it was a log. Well, <clears throat> one theory is it might even be uh, warm-blooded. It may not be a true reptile. But anyways, one idea is that this um, giant uh, snake, or actually um, it breeds in the Amazon and actually flows, goes out in the ocean, and it's in its ends its life cycle as these giant sea serpents that uh, oh, wow. yeah this is a, pati- a particular theory to explain theory. these uh, giant sea serpents do you know when we were talking guys about coincidences I, I meant to mention that um, <clears throat> when the Linnaeus Society came over and they, they were investigating report because you know 
people start writing newspapers accounts of in, it's only 1817 it's not like a thousand years ago people start writing reports about hundreds of people you know they're on the hunt of you know mm-hmm. rockport and they see this anomalous sighting something they, they can't figure out and they don't understand um i believe it was the linnaeus society came over from london or something like that and and the coincidence was really interesting was that at the time they were here investigating these reports some boy up in the north shore found basically i think either a black racer or a water snake or some kind of local snake that had like bumps on its back it was basically like a like a uh, a snake with scoliosis or something, and they and they, <laughs> and they tried to use that, and they said it was a baby. They said, "Oh, we found the baby uh, version of this <laughs> thing that's out in the ocean." But I just think, again, with the trickster phenomenon or coincidences or strange happenings, that it just happened to be when the society was present. You know, maybe they were here for I don't know how long they were here for, maybe for a couple of weeks or a month or something. But during the time they were here, looking into this, you know, craziness that the Americans are talking about, that someone found a weird snake. You know, that had like a bad back or something well but also that kind of lends into the question is is it possible that some of this was mass hysteria because we do have and i don't mean that as a pun (laughs) talking about massachusetts but uh we do have a different culture with the people of that time and they're still in a relatively new world even 200 years after they arrived uh so there is still a lot out there that they're not familiar with they haven't seen i mean I'm 34 years old. I never saw a wild turkey until the last few years, and now I see them everywhere. Yeah. You know, so it's more superstitious times too. People, mm-hmm. had, I think, I think they had more. Obviously, there was science then. Obviously, um, but I think there was lo- there were a lot of superstitious. Yeah, people well, and too. that science was tinted by religion too. Well, so. I find that you know the theory about it being mass hysteria not not all that credible. Only for the simple fact that you had several people sitting there, people. Painting this thing and drawing it. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Okay, so there was definitely something physical there that caused concern. I mean, when you got people drawing fairly detailed uh, renderings of this thing, there are several of them. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like it's not like it's a, a hallucination. You have to see it to in order to draw it if you're. You know, I have I have a theory, guys, about about a lot of the stuff that we all seem to study. Um, in terms of, uh, well, like we, it, it can relate to a lot of things. It can relate to Bigfoot. It can relate to the sea serpent, lake monster reports. It can relate to ufology. I have a theory, and it's a, kind, a, kind of answering a riddle with another riddle. But I think that these things, like let's say lake monster, like 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 Loch Ness, people say, why don't you find a dead Bigfoot, a dead Loch Ness monster type right. thing? I think these things. They're real while the person is seeing them, but they don't have like a lifespan like you and I do. They do not. They're not from point A to point B. And I know that doesn't make any sense, and it's answering a riddle with another riddle. But I think that when someone sees a UFO and it's in the field, I think you could go up and knock on it. But I don't think it's as continuous as we are, like from the beginning of your life to the end. It's 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 in and out. And I think that's why someone might see a a, a lake monster in like. You know, Lake Assawamset, pretend. Someone sees something in Middleborough, right? And then for 25 years, nobody sees anything. Or, f- or 45 years. And then someone sees something again. Is it the same one? Is it a f- is there a breeding part? I don't think it's like that. I think it's something that's more... You're talking it's almost like John Keel type stuff, like interdimensional mm-hmm. type stuff. Yeah, phase shifting in and out of this time frame. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about things like Bigfoot and whatever, not finding any corpses... Uh, I hunt and I hunt regularly every year, almost every year and stuff like that. And I know plenty of other hunters that have done this. Almost never 
finding a dead deer carcass out in the woods for years and years and years. I mean, and this is an animal that is, you know, extremely populous in our woods. So never mind trying to find something that's rare. That's a good point. That is a good okay, point. Okay, the, the woods recycles very quickly. But I mean, but what I mean is historically, like, let's say, I mean, I know that you make a good point, but let's say for in human history, I mean, are there, are there cases of dead big, I, there might be like one or two people claimed to, like the Iceman and different. I believe like, they're buried by their, uh, you know, their, their, their like kin. Yes. Yeah. I believe they're human beings, uh, Homo sapiens hirsutus means hairy. <laughs> oh, we got and a few of those here tonight. Or whatever. I believe they're human beings. It's just a different type. Well, they're but not, if you can sneak up on a gorilla and dot him, but you can't sneak up on a Bigfoot. They're too clever. So. Well, I mean, I've met some pretty hairy people in my life, so right. I can <laughs> I can certainly see now that. Why are you guys <laughs> looking at me? Because <laughs> I've we, seen you without a shirt we, on. We have some good Bigfoot cases um, over in the... Um, like in Bridgewater around uh, April of 69 through 70, right? Those, you guys know about all that. Yeah, yeah. and good, supposedly he's just recently been back out in uh, Bridgewater again, supposedly. Well, Chris, Chris Pittman is supposed to have had a uh, rep- recent report. It wouldn't surprise um, me at all, especially because they seem to be cyclical yeah. in nature of, of these sightings. So it goes back to kind of what Derek was talking about, how you, you see them appear and then reappear. Uh, over time. That would be Maybe. about 42 years ago, 1969. The yeah. other question, too, is if you if you look at the, um, you know, some of the elemental spirits of the area, uh, a lot of those are known for that trickster-type phenomenon. Of course, we, we talk about Pukwudgies, and Chris Balzano's documented those quite a bit about, you know, their, their tendency for trickery. So I wonder if maybe some of these other things that we're seeing – could be related back to that phenomenon. That goes right back to, I mean, I'm not coming up with anything original, I have to say. It's really John Keel who talked about ultra-terrestrials, mm-hmm. and he felt that a wide variety of phenomenon that we see, we perceive, like someone sees like a frogman in like Georgia, something like that, um, you know, or someone sees something, you know, like a mothman in Pennsylvania. He felt almost all that kind of paranormal type phenomena was really kind of all coming from one source, but different people see different things. And it, it's 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 really almost like like you said like a trickster type phenomenon. Really. Well, I mean, well, would that explain why recently in the past couple of weeks we've had leprechaun attacks? No, seriously. Where was that? Look, uh, Washington State, I think. I, I briefly read a couple of things, and it stuck out in my head. You know, yeah. people uh, that seeing would probably stuck out in my head if I yeah. saw it too. Yeah. Uh, leprechaun attacks. Look it up in. Uh, recently, yeah. I'm talking like past few weeks. Yeah. Maybe they should stop seeing yeah, the lucky charms. It, it's really kind of weird because people do around the world through different periods of time see like little people, little greenish people, little people. You know. Well, I mean, not not to little humanoids. I, I don't know how familiar you are with Lost, and I'm, I know that we don't have access to the chat room right now. But I know I just mentioned Lost, so Chris Balzano's freaking out here. But I don't know how familiar you are with that program if you ever watched that show. But there was the idea of this island that they were all on, and ending of the series aside, we won't spoil it for anybody, but ending aside, this island was known for its strange electromagnetic properties, you know, and it it, it would have weird creatures, ghosts, all these different things happening as a result of that electromagnetic phenomena. And I know that in this area, 
especially in this portion of Massachusetts, there's a lot of electromagnetic phenomena. We have a lot of, you know, you hear people talking a lot about the ley lines in this area and, and things like that. So maybe that is what lends itself to this other phenomena, either it being an actual real physical presence that is drawn to this or it being an illusionary type thing Almost that generated is a result of it. it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there's people who, who talk about, definitely about like um, sort of, ball lightning or orbs or will-o'-the-wisp type, you know, which is associated with sometimes with puck wedgies too, um, being associated with um, areas of, like, tectonic stress and stuff like that. And then, you know, up by the North Shore, up when you get up towards uh, Gloucester and stuff, I believe there's a, a, a pretty good fault line that kind of goes in a diagonal, you know, yep. looking at a map. Goes right, right, goes right through that area, right? Right through that area, right across the front of Cape Cod, all the way down to where Washington, D.C. is. It's yeah. actually one of the largest faults uh, in North America on the East Coast. Yeah, and it would explain some of the aerial phenomena maybe we see. Maybe not all of it, but part of it. And you, like you said, though, you wonder if that interacts with someone's um, psychological processes that and it could actually um, cause certain perceptions mm-hmm. or, or you know faulty perceptions. Um, it's, it's interesting. You know, it's a, it, we'll never really probably get to the bottom it, of it. But. Yeah, I'm sure when you got into this, you wanted to kind of chronicle the legends and the lore. And you might not have wanted to get into the to the why as much, but now you find that you can't run away from that because you start to see these patterns in the research, and then now you really start to wonder why it's all interconnected. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it it interests me when other people. I you know I like to see other people's research too, and like I keep mentioning John Keel, I guess, but you know sometimes people say things like you know UFOs are seen mostly on Wednesdays or different things, and then and then you start finding out things like. Um, that other mythologies like way back like have nothing to do with my research in Marshfield in the, you know in the late 20th century you know that people would say like Wednesday would be the day when you want to see this kind of demon or something you know it's just, and you find these correspondences that sometimes are like kind of funny you know it's like makes you scratch your head a little and I'm, I'm really I've reached the point where I'm starting to think and, and, and I'm not crapping on the work of Moniz and, and the people that he's worked with but I think that aliens are today's fairies are today's you know whatever other creatures they're today's boogeyman, and I'm not saying archetypes. that archetypes. I'm and I'm yeah. not saying that what the experiences no, they're having aren't about real. The archetype yeah, Carl Jung, that's yeah. nothing new. But Carl Jung, and I'm buying into that more, more and more than ever. Um, but well, Carl Jung, who came up with archetypes, actually mm-hmm. wrote a book about you uh, about flying saucers. Yeah, as modern myths of the, you know, he felt that they had to do with even the shapes of them being round, which is a, a symbol of cigar psychic shape. unity, cigar shapes and. And he was a neo Freudian after all, but uh, <laughs> but I mean the round That's ones. That's a phallic looking UFO. Yeah, absolutely phallic. And um, and then the round ones being maybe more a symbol of unity and psychic like cohesion. And um, and he wrote a whole book about about ufology. Well, we are actually coming up on the end of the time uh, for the show, and it it really did fly by. Uh, I never even got to open up the phone line to see if anybody wanted to call in and, and speak with Derek. But I th- I think we definitely have to have you come back. For oh, absolutely. Show. And uh, let me know. I'll be back. It sounds we'll, great. We'll do it on a night when we know that we have plenty of time, uh, when there's no Red Sox that we're waiting for, and then we can just delve right into it. For well, I really, really want to thank you guys for having me on. It's been a pleasure. It's and I'd like great. to invite you to be part of our Bridgewater Triangle show whenever we decide to do that. You can Whether you want to be here with us in the studio or whether you want to be out in the field with somebody or sure. on your yeah, own, but definitely absolutely. want to have you involved. That's great, guys. Thanks. All right. Again, his name is Derek Gunn. The website is AmazingMassachusetts.com. You got it. And you can get it. It's linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. And any any timeline on the book, is that? 
Oh my God, I've been researching this thing since '93. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, never ends, it never ends. Um, I, I had a guy bring me to a site in Middlebury the other day, perched rock, and it was uh, like cradled on three peg stones. It was like, I guess some people call it almost like a dolmen. Mm -hmm. And this thing did not seem glacial, it seemed man made. Uh, all the peg stones were perfectly mated to the bottom of the stone. I mean, you could put a credit card between them. Wow. And it was not like a convex, uh, you know, yeah. it wasn't two rounded surfaces. It was like, it was put there. And so it just it just never ends. Every but I'm I, I'm hoping maybe, geez, if I can get it together in like maybe a year or two, people you know people keep saying, when are you putting this thing out? Yeah, put it out as a series. You know, know, volume, volume one, volume one and two. two. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's the way to do it. But uh, again, for now, you can catch all the stories on amazingmassachusetts.com, and we're going to have Derek back. And any speaking engagements coming up soon? I know that you. Uh, you get I'm out there doing a lot. actually at Dighton Rock on September 9th. Okay. So if you want to throw eggs at me when you get to the Portuguese theory, you know whatever <laughs> rotten rotten tomatoes you know. I'll throw rotten guisa. Rotten guisa. I think I can say that it's late. So, yeah. All right. So uh, definitely check that out. And, and you put all your appearances up on your site, too? No, I haven't, but I will. All right. Yeah, so. I haven't yet. And, of course, people can catch you on online, too. You're on Facebook and Absolutely. things like that. So that's the way to do it. All right. Uh, we are Thanks, just about Tim. out of time tonight, but we'll be back next week. We're going to be on early next week as opposed to late like this week. But uh, we're going to be on from 7 to 9 primetime show. Uh, because the Red Sox are playing at 10 o'clock. So we've got a great show lined up for you. We're going to be joined by the folks from uh, Ghost Hunters United. ABC News covers the world. WBSM covers your neighborhood. AM 1420. WBSM. Well, that's a new one. Yeah. Today we want to find out how big a good marriage is. You mean how many people it affects? Yes. Let's go find out. How big is it? I, I can't measure it. <laughs> it's worldwide. I would say the biggest universe. And that universe is infinite. I'm just going to let those play. <laughs> they can play off in the background. So well, I just want to say goodnight to everybody. We'll be back next week from 7 to 9 during the prime time hours. Uh, we're going to be talking about Ghost Hunters United. It's, it's a new uh, organization trying to bring together paranormal unity. We'll get into all that. And uh, we'll also be joined by Wayne Morrison talking about a new Rock for Christmas in July event that's happening in Wareham on July 7th. Uh, a lot of great musical acts. There's going to be some motorcycles and guitars all on display and then the fireworks at night. So we want to tune in next week as we talk about that and a whole lot more. And you can keep up with the show online. SpookySouthCoast.com is the website. SpookySC on Twitter. And, uh, of course, you can find me on Facebook and join the Spooky South Coast page there as well. Lots of ways to keep up to date with the program. Uh, check out all the previous archives and everything else uh, on our website, SpookySouthCoast.com. So until next week, for Matt Moniz, for Matt Costa, for Chris Balzano, I'm Tim Weisberg, and we want you all to stay spooktacular. <laughs>